If you would take your Bible and join me today in Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter number 1. I suspect that most of us have started to read a book and then we got hung up on something and we never finished. Sometimes that happens sooner rather than later. And if someone asks, hey, did you ever read such and such a book? We might say something like, no, I stopped reading because I just couldn't get past whatever. And really what we're saying is, if this is where the author is going to take me, I'm not certain that I want to go along for the ride. And there's something striking about the way the Holy Spirit opens his letter to mankind. And all of mankind must determine if we're going to go along for the ride or are we unwilling to accept from the very beginning of this letter, this book of love to mankind from God, am I going to accept the very first words of scripture? And in our English Bible, these opening 10 words cannot be overstated regarding their implications and importance for mankind. We're gonna find that in the beginning, either God did what he said he did, or he did not. And what God's laying out for us from the opening words of Genesis chapter one, verse number one, is simply that there is no middle ground the title of our message today, No Middle Ground. Today, we're going to begin a sermon series in the book of Genesis, and we'll begin walking through this book of beginnings. Now, I assume, and I'm not going to make any promises, but I assume that we will cover the book of Genesis through right around Genesis chapter 36. Not too long ago, I preached through the life of Joseph, but this book of beginnings has profound impact regarding how you and I not only view God, but how we view life. The Bible says in Genesis chapter one, verse number one, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Now, many in our culture today suppose that belief is just a matter of what is it that appeals to you? In fact, it was Pascal that said, people almost invariably arrive at their beliefs, not on the basis of proof, but on the basis of what they find attractive. The only problem with this way of thinking is that it doesn't correspond with reality. See, for something to be believed, something to be true, we would say that belief must agree with reality for it to be worth believing. Now, again, we're also going to understand that belief is going to have to be something that originates outside of you. It's not something that originates within you. But today we're being told, just find the truth within you. But, but that doesn't make sense. Now, you can find certain things within you. 
You can like certain things and not like certain things. You can say, well, well, I like mushrooms on my pizza. And another, another person can say, well, I hate mushrooms on my pizza. Those may be preferential matters to you, but they're not matters that are true for all people, all places, and all times. It really doesn't matter if within you, you find two plus two equals four. You can say, well, to me, my own heart says two plus two equals three. Well, your own heart would be poorly wrong. That's a truth that doesn't exist within. That's an established truth that exists without. So what we have to do now is we have to understand what claims is scripture making. And it's actually making a claim that is not inviting you to find the truth within. It is asking us to recognize the truth without. I could believe all kinds of things that, that are appealing to me. It's just not the thing that's gonna make it true. I mean, I could believe that donuts have medicinal qualities and I will be healthier if I eat donuts every day. And while that may be appealing to me, that appeal doesn't necessarily make it true. Now, I'm not saying that it's not true. I'm just saying that it's not true because it appeals to me. Others think that your beliefs simply come from what you've been exposed to. You grew up with Christianity or with Mormonism or with Buddhism or atheism or whatever. So that's what you should believe. Now that again may be true about some things, but it doesn't make a belief correct. Culturally today, we've developed a sense of tolerance that many find quite appealing. Just choose something that works for you. We've become inclined to believe that all religions are just different paths. They're all heading up the same mountain and someday we're all going to arrive at the same peak. Essentially, we are understanding that religions, in fact, all of them are, are making some claims regarding answering what we'll refer to as a, a set of basic questions. Really what these claims are making, what they're providing is the basis for what we refer to today as our world view. They're all making claims regarding origins. This is an answer to who we are and how we got here. Religions make a claim as to this is how you arrived. How did we get here? And then we go beyond that. They also make a claim regarding the fall or the problem. Hey, this is the issue. This is an explanation that we're offering regarding the problem of suffering, the problem of evil. And then worldviews always provide, what's the, what's the resolution to this? Tell me about redemption. How are these things finally restored? What makes the wrong right again? All of these questions hinge on, is there a God? If God exists, then there is ultimate meaning and purpose in life. If there is no God, then your life ultimately means nothing. Now, do you understand the implications that we're offering today from in the beginning, God, here today, 
There may be some who are struggling with questions about purpose, identity, your worth, meaning in life, questions of life, questions of life and death. You're asking questions and are hoping that there are truly satisfying, honest answers to some of the most difficult questions that life can offer. Just after Christmas, Julie, my wife, put a puzzle together. And honestly, it was probably one of the most difficult puzzles that she's ever put together. So because of the difficulty and actually, you know, this kind of puzzle had these large swaths of space that were all the same color. And whoever puts those puzzles together is probably laughing sadistically in some corner, you know. They're just hard to figure out. I've never heard Julie say this about a puzzle before, but I heard her say it about this one. She says, I'm going to stop working on this puzzle. And she'd say it while she's standing over it, trying to find another piece. I'm sick of this puzzle. I'm not going to do this anymore. And because of the complexity of the puzzle, when she got closer and closer, more and more pieces put together, there came a point where some of them are just not fitting anywhere. And you know what she deduced, what she determined is now I know I have some pieces in the wrong place. That complicates the whole thing. Now you have to go back and start to look what piece doesn't go someplace, but I force that piece into that place. That would be me. You know, I just like, it goes there, you know. Now get me the scissors, dear. You know, I'm going to make that piece fit. Well, that's not her. You know, she'd put it there. I think it goes there. And if you put puzzles together, I suspect that, that every puzzler here, and that's not me, okay? And, unless I see, oh, there's a corner, you know? And I even get that wrong. You know, there's four corners I put it in. Oh, just leave it there, you know? But, but here's what most puzzlers do. I mean, you all do it. It's not cheating, right? You pick up the box and you study the box because it gives you some context for where do the pieces go. Now, it may take some extra work, but the box gives you, it's not gonna answer all your questions, but you do know there is a big picture. All of these pieces somewhere fit in this puzzle. And God makes all the pieces available. Now, some of you really are wicked and you hide a piece of the puzzle your family's putting together. But you know what God doesn't do? He's not, he's not trying to hide pieces. He gave us a book and he says, study the book because you're going to understand from the picture of myself, from the picture of the world, you're going to understand me from, so to speak, the box top. The question for us today is, does any singular religion really have the reliable answers for the questions of life? Or are we just forcing pieces to fit where they really aren't supposed to go? Is that all Christianity is? You know, if you, if you take a moment and just consider the major religions of the world, essentially they all fit into three main areas. The first one we would have is theism. Theism. This is God made all. Theism, that would be Christianity. That would also be Judaism. And it would also, interestingly enough, be the Islamic 
faith. God created all. And then we'd go a little bit further and then we'd say there's another system of belief and that is pantheism. And that is God is all. God is all. This would be Buddhism, Hinduism. This is new age teaching. And then the third area of a system of faith is what we would refer to as atheism. Atheism, it is a system of belief and it truly is a worldview. And if we define it by the parameters with which we would define theism and pantheism, we would also understand it is a religion. This would be religious humanism. This would certainly involve what we might refer to as the the religion of evolution. Basically, the three groups see God in this way. Theism, in all of scripture, there's, there's this understanding that God is the painter. And he has painted for us this beautiful portrait and you can see God's reflection in his painting, in his work, But the work is not God. The work is simply a reflection of the God who created the painting. If you went a little bit further with with this thought, the pantheist says, God is the painting. The painting is God. This is not not anything more than that we worship the painting because the painting is God. God is the painting. And then the, the atheist doesn't believe that God is anything. In this religion, the painting is all about man. Man is the painter and the painting. He is the one who determines what he's going to look like. And if anything's going to be resolved, it's all going to come down to man. Do you know all three of these religious groups are really covered in Genesis chapter 1, verse number 1? God addresses all of these from the first 10 words of Scripture. Theism. In all of scripture, no argument is made to prove the existence of God. Instead, his existence is simply presented. It's an understood fact, one of which mankind is already aware. And that's what Genesis 1-1 does. In the beginning, you already know this, God. Scripture highlights this for us again throughout Romans 1-19, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them. For God hath showed it unto them. And then if we took that thought a little bit further, just a couple verses down, verse number 21, Romans chapter 1, because that when they knew God, when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations and their foolish heart was darkened. What does Genesis 1-1 understand? It understands we already know there's a God Well, how does this address address atheism? Atheism, the the Bible very clearly refutes atheism when it says, in the beginning, God. It's making a direct assault on the person who denies the existence of God. It says, no, 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 you can't go there. You knew already that there is a God. And then pantheism Notice how it addresses pantheism when the Bible makes a distinction between God and his creation. In the beginning, God created. It doesn't say in the beginning, creation is God or in the beginning, God is the creation. It makes a clear distinction. 
John Gray is a man who is an atheist, but he understood man's need to worship. It doesn't matter if you are a theist, if you are a pantheist, if you are an atheist, it really doesn't matter. You have a built-in hardwired need to worship. And Gray said the following, the need for religion appears to be hardwired into the human animal. Atheists are usually just as ardently engaged as believers. Ardently engaged in what? Ardently engaged in their faith. Gray understood that there's no middle ground on this matter of worship. We're hardwired to worship. The only question is what, or more importantly, who will we choose to worship? And then we might even say, does this really matter? Today, we live in this relativistic world. People say truth is relative, or to say it a different way, they say that truth changes depending on how it relates to you personally. But if something is true, remember, it has to be found outside of ourselves, not from within. I I did a little study, and then I read into their content. Stanford University offers an introduction to philosophy uh, a content and they make some very interesting, uh, they present some very interesting laws. They first of all present, this is again in their introduction to philosophy, they present first of all what they call the law of non-contradiction. The law of non-contradiction. This says, the law of non-contradiction tells us that a statement cannot be both true and false at the same time. A statement cannot be both true and false at the same time. The law of non-contradiction. This is the idea of either or thought. And it's based on the the law of non-contradiction. Either Christianity is true and Mormonism is false. Or Mormonism is true and Christianity is false. You can't have both. One is not to be concluded that it is the same as the other the law of non-contradiction. Stanford goes on, they say that this law is relatively uncontroversial. In other words, yeah, we all get this. It's true or false. And then to reiterate this, it's really a restatement, although more deeply saying the same thing, they presented a second law and that is the law of the excluded middle. The law of the excluded middle. Again, what Stanford says, it means that a statement is either true or false, Think of it as claiming that there is no middle ground between being true and being false. Every statement has to be one or the other. Okay, it's not like, well, you know, it's becoming true. One day this will finally be true if we can convince enough people, if everyone finally agrees. He says, no, 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 no. It it is either true or it is false. And this is the law of the excluded middle. We say all of this to help us understand the important fact that Christianity, as presented in the pages of Scripture, is either true or false. Not just for those who have chosen to accept it. It is true or false for everyone. There is no middle ground. So whatever truth we hold to, we would also submit, is this a reasonable faith? And by placing our faith in God, we're acknowledging some very important truths. Is, okay, is this reasonable? Because if I'm gonna believe something, man, I, I don't wanna believe in pixie dust. 
I don't want to believe in just something that makes for a beautiful fairy tale, but it doesn't resonate with reality. So is this faith that we call Christianity that is grounded in the pages of Scripture, is this a reasonable faith? And do you know what we start to do when we acknowledge that this is my faith? We're also making some acknowledgments regarding other areas. The first thing we admit is we admit that we are not the highest authority when it comes to truth. If you accept the Bible as your final answer, you are acknowledging you are not the final arbiter of all truth. There is someone who gets to say yes or no, right or wrong, good and evil, light and darkness. And, and, and that's not me. And that's what we're acknowledging. And we admit that we don't have the final authority to define right and wrong. I'm not the highest authority when it comes to truth. I'm not the one who gets to define. Well, let me just tell you what's right for me. Again, that may work for certain areas. It may be right for one person to engage in something, to participate in something, to head a certain direction. And it may be wrong for another person, but not as it pertains to that which is true for all people, all places, and all times. If I'm attempting to escape the authority of God, I'm going to try with every ounce of strength I have to make a case against his existence. This is why Paul wrote, uh, this is what Paul wrote of, and it's plainly see, seen in Romans chapter one. Again, verse number 25. Here the Bible says, who changed the truth. Now, let me say very clearly, who changed the truth. Notice those words. You really can't change the truth who changed the truth of God into what? Who changed the truth of God into a lie. They're trying to do the impossible. Why? Because if I don't want to come underneath God's authority, and if I ultimately want to become my own authority, I'm going to have to do something regarding truth. And I have to change the truth of God into a lie. And then what do I do? I worship and serve the creature, maybe even myself more than the creator who is the creator blessed forevermore. Amen. Because the Bible knows that there's no middle ground, consider the questions it is answering in the first few pages of scripture. You and I, we oftentimes, we go through a litany of questions. When something's really important to us and we want the facts, give me the facts, we start to almost intuitively ask some questions like who, what, where, when, and then ultimately, if we can figure this out, it really seems to help us why. Who, what, where, when, why? I find it interesting that in this first verse, you almost, not thoroughly, not in incredible detail, but with some power, we see who, what, where, and when answered in the first verse of Genesis chapter one, verse number one, who. Well, the who that is being addressed here is God. This is the one we're talking about. And remember, when we come to God, we come to God how? We must come to God by faith. 
Now, I'm also going to offer, submit this because it is the truth. And it is what all of us have to at least acknowledge. No matter what system of belief you hold to, you come to all of them with some measure of faith. I'm going to submit that some of them require an incredible amount of faith. (laughs) Far more faith than I have, quite honestly. You start to consider the options for what am I going to believe about origins, about purpose, about meaning, about what's holding this whole thing together. One of the spokesmen for what we would call an evolutionary view of life, one of the spokesmen is a man by the name of Richard Dawkins. Richard Dawkins, when talking about faith, said this, It is absolutely safe to say that if you meet somebody who claims not to believe in evolution, that person is ignorant, stupid, or insane, or wicked, but I'd rather not consider that. Really what he's saying is if you have faith that there is a creator God, then here's where I am relegating you to ignorance, to stupidity, to insanity, and possibly even to wickedness. Dawkins also said, faith is the great cop-out, the great excuse to evade the need to think and evaluate evidence. Faith is belief in spite of, even perhaps because of, the lack of evidence. Interesting. Does Dawkins have faith? Of course he does. Notice what he said. The fact that life evolved out of nearly nothing some 10 billion years after the universe evolved out of literally nothing, after the universe evolved out of literally nothing is a fact so staggering that I would be mad to attempt words to do it justice. Do you know how he's believing in that? that? He's believing in the fact that this world came into existence out of nothing apart from an all-powerful God. Let me tell you, that takes an incredible amount of faith. The Bible says, but without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. In other words, God rewards with answers Those who are diligently seeking him. Well, we have the answer to who, who, that is God. And then we go a little bit further and we start to say, well, what's the next question? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who, what? What are we talking about? We're talking about creation. Through faith, Hebrews 11.3 says, through faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. Where did this all come from? This all came from the worlds that were framed by the word of God. The word framed here, it means to put in order, to fit it all together. Astronomer Heinz Oberhammer said, the basic forces in the universe are tailor-made for the production of carbon-based life. He says the whole universe seems to have had someone behind it that ordered it in such a way that it was tailor-made, purposefully made, designed, could we say. 
for people just like you and people like me. As science progresses, it appears that the theories of evolution become more and more problematic. Today, one of the most powerful evidences for design is the DNA code. The DNA code. In other words, there's an actual language written into DNA. It's not just some arbitrary repetition of the same over and over and over again. There's some design happening. We understand this on the most rudimentary levels. If you and I are walking down the beach and we see the, the gentle ripples that the waves create over and over and over again, we know there's no intelligence behind the wave. It's just producing that which, which nature then produces. It was set in order and it continues to do it. But if we're walking along the beach and we see a bottle and it's sealed and we see a little note wrapped up in it and we rush out and we pick up the bottle, we know that this was not the product of just random arbitrary forces. We, and we, well, we pop the lid, we take the note out, and now there's a language written on there. If you wanted to be even more basic, you're walking down the beach and you see the, the gentle lines that come from the waves and, and it's just beautiful and peaceful. And then all of a sudden we see a little sandcastle. And, and it's, it's kind of partially fallen down. It's been there for a while, but we see these little pillars and, and we see a little bridge and it's kind of washed out, but we know somebody was there. The DNA code is so much more compelling than finding a bottle or a sandcastle on the side of the beach. It is something that shouts, this had to have someone who wrote this code into the very fabric of your existence. Even Richard Dawkins said the genetic code is truly digital in exactly the same sense as a computer code. This is not some vague analogy, it is the literal truth. The point is, when you see a message, a language, an email, a text message, you immediately conclude it's not the product of natural causes. Interestingly enough, the chemical letters in DNA do not line up with any type of repetitive law or formula. In other words, there's nothing about DNA that tells it to repeat itself over and over again in the same way. Instead, DNA appears to have someone taking all the letters and using them to write a story. And since every cell in your body stores more information than a 30 volume set of the Encyclopedia Britannica, every cell in your body, Someone with incredible knowledge, this, this infinitely complex language took it and he began to write it into you. Someone wrote the DNA code of your body telling certain cells how to form your eyes or your blood or your brain or your fingernails or your ears, your bones, your lungs, your liver, your skin, your hair, your tongue, your teeth, your feet, your fingers, and so on. And it is a lot of writing. And even though we've finally been able to open the book of DNA, we have not been able to write any books ourselves. We've just begun to read it. Scientists have oftentimes attempted to take some kind of a, make their own evolutionary soup. Let's take all the necessary ingredients and let's put it all together and make the conditions ripe for life. But in a sense, it's backwards engineering. 
Do you know what you have to have? Let's say you're really good with building things and you're technical and so you're gonna build your own computer and you got all the necessary raw ingredients and you built a computer. You, you, you built a circuit board, you soldered every, every piece, every wire, every circuit, every screen. You built, built the whole thing. You finally, from raw materials, you built a computer. Do you plug it in and expect it to do everything that you expect a computer to do? Or do you realize, oh, wait, this computer has to be told what to do. And we're just talking about a computer. It has to have software. It has to have a, a programmer that actually gives it an operating system. And now the, the hardware has to have what we refer to as the software to know what am I supposed to do? And how is a computer, which it, of course it can't do, how's it going to reproduce? How's it going to form another computer? And how, how in this reproduction is this second one going to know all the things necessary to produce the hardware? Who's going to design the software? What is Genesis 1-1 answering? In the beginning, God created. It goes a little bit further. We get the where. Where is this talking about? Oh, the heaven and the earth. In the beginning... God created the heaven and the earth. The psalmist proclaimed where answers could be found. The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament showeth his handiwork. This created world has answers if we simply look at it and study it. Answers regarding purpose and meaning of life. Do you know our earth itself, our earth rotates around itself. Our earth is in a rotational um, um, race, so to speak. It's rotating at about a thousand miles an hour. And then further, it's orbiting around the sun. Our earth orbits around the sun at a mind-bending speed of about 67,000 miles an hour. Without a creator God, removing God from the beginning of anything, and most certainly removing God from creation is to leave everything as nothing more than some meaningless mass of matter careening through space with no purpose, no direction, no goal, and ultimately no hope. Who? God. What? Creation. Where? Heaven and earth. When? Well, he tells us the answer to that. In the beginning, this predates God, by the way, to his creation. We understand him to be the eternally existent one who is on the scene prior to creation. In the beginning, who's there? God. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. In Genesis chapter 1, the who, what, where, when questions are all answered. But there's also one final question that we really won't take time to answer today. It is the why question. And I would submit the why, at least in part, is to bear his image. I, I could go on and say to receive his love, to reciprocate his love. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him, male and female, created he them. There is profound satisfaction in knowing why you are here. You were created by a person. You were created for a purpose. You were created with a plan. 
that you might accurately reflect the one who created you. Today, you and I are presented, confronted at the very outset of God's love letter with content regarding no middle ground. You have to make a choice. In the beginning, I would submit, God created the heaven and the earth.